If you open your Bibles with me and stand as we read Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. We're going to close out this chapter here, and we're looking at, as Paul last week was looking at this wonderful creation of a third humanity from the Jews and the Gentiles, and he goes on, verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. This is the holy word of the Lord given to you for your edification. May you receive it as such. Please have a seat. Back in high school, I had an English teacher, and she was notorious for marking you down for any small error on your papers. And one of the big no-nos in her class was mixing your metaphors. Do you ever do this? Do you still do this? Mixing your metaphors? It's, it's like when you say, don't, don't look a dead horse in the mouth while you lead him to water. It's a mixed, bit of a mixed metaphor. Or my, my parents would say, you know, we'll jump off that bridge when we come to it. Don't. Think about that one for a second. I don't think that quite works. But one of my favorite mixed metaphors, we have to get all of our ducks on the same page. It's not good writing. So she would mark us up for any of these mixed metaphors. And I would hate to think what would happen if my high school English teacher ever got a hold of a copy of Ephesians. Because if she got to the end of Ephesians 2 here, she'd probably take Paul's letter and be circling it in red and then return it back to him like, you can do better. Paul, you're, you're trying to cram in way too many metaphors in these last couple verses here. But can you really blame him? Paul's like bubbling over with excitement. I mean, his excitement just continues through this whole letter. But here he's trying to, he's exploring God's great plan of creating a third human, a new humanity out of these two formerly divided and opposed races the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's just so excited about it that he starts mixing his metaphors together. He creates three beautiful, striking images to describe the church. And if your Bibles are still open, you'll notice he doesn't even use the word church anywhere here. But that's exactly what he's describing. And he's just trying to give you this sense, using everyday relatable concepts, of what the church is and what your place is in it. So I want to look at that today. Look at what the church is and what our place is in it through these metaphors. In 2002, I took a trip to Japan to see my old college roommate. And it was really my first time out of country. You go to Canada or Mexico, it doesn't really count, right? I mean, you have to go to another country to really be out of country. And I went to Japan. And it was, it was a wonderful week there. We toured Kyoto and Tokyo. We saw some Buddhist temples. We stayed in hostels. We went to a bathhouse, which was one of the most profoundly uncomfortable experiences of my life. You thought that they would have a guy section and a girl section? Nope, just anyways. 
And we also ate some very strange and questionable food. We went to one of these restaurants where they had the food coming down on a little conveyor belt. And if you wanted to buy it, it would have a little price tag and you'd take it off and you know, you'd buy that. And my friend said, here, eat this. I'm like, what is it? He's like, I'm not telling you, eat it. And so I ate it. He's like, you just ate octopus and squid. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. But even though while I was there, even though everybody in Japan, without fail, was very polite and very friendly to me, it was clear that I was an outsider. I didn't fit in. I didn't speak their language. I didn't know their customs. I didn't have a Japanese passport. And I certainly didn't look like any of them. It was the only week of my life that I ever felt tall. It was, it was wonderful, but I was very much on the outside of that culture. In fact, my friend, who's, he's lived in Japan ever since, you know, for now 20 years. He got married to a Japanese citizen. They've had kids there. But he knows that no matter how much of the language he learns, how many of their customs he learns, in that culture, he will never be considered one of them. He will always be a gaijin. He will always be on the outside. That culture is very hard to join. And I have to imagine that for some people hearing about the kingdom of God, we have that same reaction. That, that sounds nice. I think I'll always be an outsider to that. I always imagine listening in the Gospels of people hearing, at that time, hearing Jesus preach about the kingdom of God. And the, the, this kind of warring emotions inside of them of excitement and also depression. They're hearing all these great words of the kingdom of God and they're like, man, that sounds like a great place. But they know they're sinners. They know they have no right to be in the kingdom of God. And so their, their heart falls out, their stomach falls out, and they go, oh, if I got into that king, if, even if I snuck in, somehow I'd be an outcast. I would have no right to be there. Everybody would point at me and say, you're a faker, get out of here. Yeah, Paul says right here, these great words in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, that as a consequence of Jesus forging together this church full of both Jews and Gentiles, is that everybody in that church would be no longer foreigners or strangers. Another word for that is alien. They would no longer be alien. In fact, one of the benefits of salvation is that each person who belongs to the church, who's a professing believer in Jesus Christ, is immediately granted upon salvation a full and complete citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, with all the rights and privileges that that entails. Now for us, I don't know if we ever think about our citizenship, but I'll tell you, in the ancient world, your citizenship was a big deal. And the best, the absolute best citizenship you could have was to be a Roman citizen. If you had a Roman citizenship, you had it made above and beyond everybody else in the ancient world. For starters, Romans couldn't be crucified and tortured. No Roman citizen would be. That's why Paul got beheaded, by the way, and not crucified. If you were a Roman citizen, you had the right to vote, the right to hold office, you could own property, and you would have the right to have a legal trial before any judge. That wasn't just a given in that society. You had to be a Roman citizen. In fact, if you're reading, if you ever go through Acts and you get to Acts chapter 16, you find out that Paul and Silas are beaten by the officials of Philippi. 
And then afterwards, the officials freak out when they discover that Paul is a Roman citizen. Why are they scared? Well, they're scared because they they didn't hold a trial. And they know that if they, they beat a Roman citizen without a trial, the Roman government could come and do to them what they just did to Paul and Silas. That it was like a shield of protection around people to have a Roman citizenship. Yet look here. Paul, almost without a thought, casts aside his Roman citizenship and grabs on to an even greater citizenship in God's kingdom. It's like, man, that Roman, that's okay. But this is where it's at. This citizenship right here is of infinitely greater value. And in this short metaphor, he indicates that when you have this citizenship, you are of equal status to every other citizen in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't go on to say that there's ten tiers of classes in the, the kingdom of heaven. No, there's just one. If you are a male citizen in the kingdom of heaven, you are equal to a female citizen in the kingdom of heaven. If you are a Jew, you are no better than a Gentile kingdom, uh, citizen in the kingdom of heaven. It's all equal. It's all on the same level. It's absolutely wonderful. We belong to each other, and we have this holy communion. Pastors are right down there. Deacons are right down there. We're all at the same level. What Paul wants us to start considering here with this metaphor of citizenship is that we need to have in our minds a fundamental shift in our identity and how we see ourselves. Our identity is sometimes wrapped up in a lot of different things. Whenever you meet somebody and they ask you about yourself, what do you usually tell them? Usually, I mean, if I'm ever asked somebody to say, Sarah, tell me about yourself, she'll tell me what she does for a living or maybe where she lives. But is that really who you are? Is that really the most important thing about you? Imagine if somebody asked us about ourselves and we'd say, well, Kyle, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's the most important thing you need to know about me. I'm a child of God. And by the way, the door is wide open if you want to immigrate into heaven as well. Just bust that out once, once or twice. See, see the blank looks as people try to process that. I mean, we wouldn't naturally say that. It's very awkward in conversation. But start thinking it from that perspective. Have that thought in your heart that above being a New Yorker, above being an American, that the most important citizenship in your life is that you belong to the kingdom of God. That is, that is your nationality. That's where you belong. But no sooner does Paul write down one metaphor than in the same exact sentence, he just hops onto a completely different one. And so your, your mind's like suddenly shifting gears here. And he says, well, belonging as a citizen, having all those rights, that's a pretty good thing. But Paul says it goes further and deeper than that. He says that all believers are members of God's household. We're all part of the family of God. See, being a citizen is good, but being part of a family is more intimate, right? There's, there's a transition there. So instead of being kept on the outside of the gates of the kingdom of God, we are granted, in, we are granted passage in. We're given cloaked with full citizenship. But it goes better than that. He says, now come down the main road and you see that palace at the end of the street? That's your new home. Come in there. And God opens the doors for you and says, welcome, my son. Welcome, my daughter. Come, I've prepared a place for you. You live here now. 
kind of sounds like a fairy tale almost, that we've gone from rags to riches, but that's exactly the truth of what happens when we're saved. Anderson Seminary president David Sebastian once told a story back when he was a pastor. He said he was at home, and his son came bursting in the doors, his teenage son, and said, Dad, you got to come quick. There's a crazy lady in the middle of the field, and nobody knows what to do with her. Come. I mean, that's like pastors wear a lot of hats, so when nobody knows what to do, you know, go grab a pastor. It's, it's kind of your Hail Mary. So he goes, okay, I'll, I'll come. So David went out to investigate, and sure enough, there was a lady in the middle of a field, and she was standing there clutching a dog while the police had slowly surrounded her. And so David kind of sizing up this situation, and he walked up, he talked to the police, he said, what's going on? And they said, well, this lady obviously has some sort of mental condition. She has something, something going on, a little screw loose, something in her head that's not quite right. But she arrived in the area a couple days ago on a bus. She was wandering around, and they tried to send her to a homeless shelter. But apparently when she got there, they told her, you have to give up the dog if you're going to stay here. They don't allow dogs there. So she refused. And, and then when the police started to try to come and talk to her, she started running away, and then the police had to keep following her. And she ran, and she ran, and she ran until her legs gave out, and that's when she ended up in the middle of a field. So David Sebastian went over and talked with her, and he said, Hi, I'm a pastor. And he asked her, he said, What's your name? What's your name? Where are you from? You know, those, those important things. Who are you? And the, the lady said, I'm, I'm Mandy. I'm Mandy from Missouri. And David said, at that point, a light bulb went off in his head. It's like, I know you. She's like, what? And he fished around in his back pocket, and he withdrew a letter that he got a couple days ago from his friend, another pastor in another city. He said, listen, Mandy, my friend who's a pastor in your old hometown told me to be on the lookout for you, said that you were coming to town. He opened this letter, and he held it out for her. He said, look, he asked me to take care of you whenever you got to town. Come with me, Mandy. I've prepared a place for you. And she went with him. And she went, and he said, as, as she was walking with him, her face transformed. And she just clutched that letter. She almost didn't believe it until she read those words that I've prepared a place for you. And suddenly she was smiling. Just moments ago, she felt isolated. She felt alone. She felt outcast. But now she knew she had a place. She was welcome. She had a future. Likewise, God's prepared a place for you and a place for me in his household. And he wrote it down in a letter so that he could show it to you, so that you could read it and you can believe it, that you have a place in his family. As the saying goes, Home is where you, when, when you go there, what? They have to take you in. And when we go to heaven, God's got to take us in. He's promised us. Corey Tim Boom, I love her. She would always say, God, you promised us this. You have to stick to your promise. That's what God will do. He'll throw open his doors. He'll say, welcome, come in. And he will tenderly care for us as we call him Father. And as we look around, we're going to see our family, our brothers and our sisters, some of whom are here right now, some of whom are already there, some of whom have yet to come. But if we are part of this household of God, if we are part of a family, 
then we have a right, a duty, a responsibility to grow up in the likeness of our Holy Father, to kind of rise to the standards of his family. When we have that moment, when it clicks for you, that God is very much your Father, that these aren't just words that we say at church without meaning, that God is literally your spiritual Father, and that your fellow people around you in church, your fellow believers, are actually your brothers and sisters, it starts changing the way you interact with both of them. With your father, you want to get to know more. You want to start reading the Bible more because you get excited about this guy who calls you son or calls you daughter. I want to get to know my father more. And you start treating those church members around you, not as these strange people who are sitting next to you in the pews, but you start treating them tenderly, compassionately, with care, because you care for them. They're your, your brother, your sister. Sure, you might have disagreements with them. They might give you a noogie. You might steal their dolly, whatever. We get past that because we're family. And we're family. And this is a, a reality of the church that Paul wants us to see. Well, those revelations are great that we're a citizen, that we're part of a family, but it raises a, a new concern for us. I think anybody who reads this letter and goes, this is almost too good to be true. What if it's a really cruel joke that maybe God's giving me a citizenship and God's giving me a place in his family, but if I mess up a little too much, he's going to take it away. Well, what if it's only for a certain amount of time and there's, a, there's an expiration date to all of this and God's going to take it away? And there's that fear that bubbles up. And that's why Paul closes out this chapter with his final metaphor, that of the church being a part of a permanent temple, of a structure that will last forever. Now, over hundreds of years, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship and community and fellowship of the people of God. There were actually three temples built, if you look back at your history, sort of. There's the, the Solomon's temple. That's the temple we think of in the Old Testament. The grand temple, the beautiful temple, temple took years, decades to build, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was stored, and people would go, and they would look at this was the, the pinnacle of worship. It was the tabernacle made permanent, and people would love that. But that structure, it stood as long until the country fell to the Babylonians, and they raised the temple right to the ground. And when 70 years later, when the Jews came back, they said, well, we've got to build a new temple, but we're pretty broke. So they built a second temple. It was kind of more of a, a sad structure. They called it the, the Zerubbabel Temple. And that was a Jewish governor at the time. And they did what they could with the money they had, but it was kind of a lackluster structure. And that's where they worshipped for, uh, for many years. But even over time, the Zerubbabel Temple got desecrated by invading armies. It got sacked a number of times. Things were stolen out of it. It was pretty run down. Until Herod the Great came along. We remember Herod from the, the Christmas stories, right? Well, Herod, he always wanted, he was a political guy. He always wanted to get the Jews on his side, even though the Jews hated him with a fiery passion of a thousand burning suns. And so Herod said, well, what if I renovate their temple? What if I make it great? And so he built, kind of, kind of rebuilt and renovated the temple, and he made the Herodian Temple. It was a, it's a nice structure. It wasn't as, quite as good as the Solomon Temple, but still really good. And that was the temple of Jesus' time. 
And that temple lasted as long until the Jewish uprising in 70 AD. And the Romans came down and they tore that temple down to the ground and cast all the stones aside. Since 70 AD, there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem. For the Jewish people, it's been a terrible tragedy. It's, it's, it just gutted their national identity. Even though they have Israel back, they have not been able to rebuild the temple. However, here in Ephesians 2, Paul says that the physical temple is no longer needed. We don't need it because the, the longer-lasting temple, the real temple, the permanent temple, is being built right now in a spiritual sense. And he actually gives us the blueprint for this temple at the final verses here in chapter 2. So the blueprint for this spiritual temple is that the foundation is Holy Scripture. as the words of the prophets and the apostles, the teaching there. The Bible is a foundation for the temple. Then we have the cornerstone. And as we talked about from Psalms, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. It's the, the stone that all other stones have to conform to. They have to be molded around. That's the, the blueprint, the template, the foundational stone of the building to which everything else is built around. And then finally, you have all the building blocks. And here Paul actually spends the most time. He says all these building blocks upon Jesus Christ and upon his words are the saints, are the believers. And it's not just a Paul thing. Peter writes about this in his letter, in his first epistle. Peter says, you yourselves are the living stones which are being built up as a spiritual house, as a temple. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing contrast to look between the old temple and this new temple. The old temple, the Jewish temple, well, you couldn't be in the direct presence of God. Only the high priest, once or twice a year, he, only him you could go into the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence would be. All the other people had to stand on the outside. The Gentiles had to stand on the way outside, as we talked about. But now, Jew and Gentile alike, we are the living stones that are not just in the structure. We are part of the structure. We are part of this temple that will last forever. We are side by side. We're enjoying the direct presence of God as we are being built upon his word and upon Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thought when you consider that you and me, if we imagine each one of us as one living stone being added, our lives being added to this temple that's being built, that we are part of the same exact structure that the 12 apostles are part of that Martin Luther and John Calvin are a part of, that Paul, Abraham, and David are a part of, that famous missionaries like Hudson Taylor and David Livingstone are a part of. We're all part of the same spiritual temple. It's incredible. We have many things, I think, that we could go down a list of what we hate this year for, that we hate 2020. A lot of my friends curse 2020 like it's going outside, like I hate this year, this year's the worst. But if there's something to praise God about, I think it's because the temple of God has been growing this year because it always grows when there's deep oppression and deep trial going on in the world. I think people have been coming back to God, seeking God in ways that they haven't in a long time. And how many have heard and responded to the gospel this year? How many more bricks have been added to the temple? If we could see, if we could see with our eyes, 
How great the temple of the Lord is right now. How it's been growing in 2020. We would stand up and cheer our God. Well, we're Presbyterians. We'd sit and nod (laughs) in approval. But our hearts would be full of praise. We would see how much greater the temple has been growing this year. And if I'm understanding Paul's final metaphor correctly, this image of us being side by side in God's temple, being stones, means that as Christians, we cannot live apart from the church. We can't be Christians and go, well, I'm a Christian, I just don't go to church. That's, that's not your calling. That's not functional. We can't be apart from church and apart from Scripture and apart from Jesus. Those three things are vital in our lives, and we start starving ourselves when we cut ourselves off. We're called to live out our union in Christ through our worship and our work in the church today. As part of the church, what are the three metaphors? We're called and welcome to become citizens with rights and privileges. We're members of a family with love and acceptance, and we're part of a permanent temple with purpose and stability. Those are three great metaphors. And I don't care if Paul mixes them together because it really creates this wonderful multi-layered image in our minds of what the church is. And each one of those points has you as part of it. Now we have the encouragement we need to go forth this week and give God our all as citizens, as family, as temple. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege, what an honor it is, what a glorious gift to be given all these things. Not because we deserved it, not because we applied for it, but because you looked at us, you loved us, you chose us, and you called us. Lord, may, our, may as we hear these words, if we have not received your salvation, may we fall to our knees and ask it from you. Lord, may we ask you to come into our lives and say, I want that citizenship. I want that family. That sounds so good. I want to be part of something that will last forever. And Lord, if we do indeed have that salvation in our hearts, may we come to a deeper and fuller realization as Paul is trying to teach us here of the just wonderful privileges and blessings that it is to be called a child of God, to be called a citizen of your kingdom and part of your temple. Lord, in all these things, we just ask that you would build up this body of believers, that we would be a good force for you this week, that we would love others, we would minister tenderly to them, we would show grace and compassion to all we meet, and we would stand firm on the truth that you've given us. In your name.